Last week, I thought Pastor Rick did a great job of getting us back into the world of Corinth. The Apostle Paul plants this church after he leaves. He finds out, as you can see from the graphic, we've been saying a long time that this place is just a dumpster fire. I mean, they're writing letters to him. He gets word of all these different issues going on. And so at this point, we're kind of deep into Corinthians where he's just putting out different fires. And there's another issue in the church that Paul needs to address. But before we dive into that, I want to start with a little story. See, somebody on our street, I don't even know the family, they're new to our street, just brought a baby home. And I know that because in their yard they had a massive sign, baby on board, or I don't even know what it said, but there was a big old sign. And I was driving down the street with my six-year-old son in the back. It's a fun age right now that his life is just full of wonder. And so we're driving down, and I, you know, kind of announced, like, oh, they just brought a baby home. And in his six-year-old mind, he goes, well, you think it's like a baby elephant, maybe? No, like a human child. Like, why would you think? But in his world, like a baby, so maybe it's a baby elephant. Maybe something real cool like a giraffe or super cute like a koala. Let's go see. No, not a baby elephant. A human child came home. Now, you're wondering, how does that tie into the sermon? It does not at all. Zero connection. Why did I start with that? Because I wanted to start with something nice and easy to hear. The passage this morning might be, I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> I mean, really, the passage this morning could be hard for a lot of folks to hear. So I want to start with baby elephants and build up to it, right? But here's the deal, right? So we're going to dive into one of the issues that Paul is dealing with is gender, gender roles, kind of men and women roles and distinction of roles, I know what you're thinking, like, great, another white male talking about this. Cool, 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 cool. I'm aware, I understand, right? This is a massive issue in our culture, but here's my encouragement, right? This is something all of us should care about extremely. This is an important issue, but what I'm encouraging you to is think through how do you decide your view on this issue? Culture is constantly shifting. So is it, that's the default, primarily what culture says about this, or do we allow God and his word to shape our understanding of this? And of course, that is my encouragement, but man, in our cultural context, this I'm sure can be hard to hear. So we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 2, and then we're going to kind of jump to chapter 14, because he kind of deals with it again. So you can follow along on the screen as I read, or if you have a Bible with you, But let's go to God's word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If any was inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Here's where he jumps down to 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I feel like it got warm in here. Did it just get hot? Gosh. You know, sometimes you read the scripture and it reads just like a beautiful psalm, almost brings you to tears. Sometimes you read the scripture and it just feels like nails on a chalkboard, like, oh, don't tell me some of those phrases didn't hit you, like, what the? New folks are like, what church did I just go to? This is a difficult passage. It is hard, I think, to wrestle with, particularly in our culture, but my hope is we don't have to see it as harsh. Because some of their, there are very clearly cultural nuances here that don't apply to us. And so I think that can maybe take some of the harshness out of it. But the principle can be really hard to wrestle with. So I would ask you, and I would want to do the same, that we would be gracious towards each other. Like we just did the creed series. Like these are, when you talk about the creed, the essentials, the core of what it means to be Christian... That's not what this is. This is a different category of kind of men and women's roles. And so I would hope to be gracious towards each other. So if you don't hold this, disagree with this, I want you to know you are loved here, you are welcomed here, and I want us to have charity towards each other, being that these are kind of like non-essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And I want us to be gracious because this is an extremely difficult passage to sift through. Some of that is because there's so much cultural nuance going through and head coverings and what in the world does it all mean? But even in the midst of the difficulty, we still have to determine this is God's word. What does it mean and what does it mean for us? And the more I began to study this, right? The more I began to study this, there were a lot of guys that went, it's so much work to say, you can't mean that, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that. And there was a lot of guys, and there was some disparity of what it means, but many of them went at great lengths to show that it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. 
Now, again, some of the harshness of the cultural nuance, we can kind of, you know, figure out how we can let go of that. But the core of what he's dealing with, I think, is fairly clear. And he kind of lays it out up front of what is kind of the core truth to deal with. And he says that right in the first verse here. And it starts in two into three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. There's no way around it. He is presenting male headship. Different verses will say different things, but I'm glad this one has wife because what he's dealing with primarily here and in 14 is male headship in the home, within the family, and within the church. So this isn't just like every situation of male and female, but he is talking about male headship. And that's a difficult thing. It's kind of a big term, but there are some unavoidable aspects of that that I think we need to deal with. So I am going to say some dirty words, the A word and the S word, right? He does define headship as authority and submission. And that's probably more offensive than if I would have just said the A word and the S word right now. (laughs) But he does say that like a symbol of authority. And there is this idea. So what do we do with... Now, of course, culture has messed this up. This has been distorted. But you do have a picture of male headship in the home and in the church. So what do we do with that? He's talking about God's ordering... It's kind of like this military idea. Listen, we're talking about both creating the image of God. Nobody's not saying that. We're talking about equality and partnership. But in God's design, is there a hierarchy of authority of husband and wife and in the church as well? So here is the uphill battle that I have. You can tell from the quiet tension in the room, right? To acknowledge that there is difference of gender and distinction of role, but there is no difference in value and worth. That's my takeaway that I hope you understand, that there is distinction of gender and even some distinction of gender role, but that doesn't mean that there is any better or worse. Different then does not mean less than. I think society has pushed that on us, but we can rightfully reject that. There can be different than and equal to. My favorite illustration of this is kind of understanding, right? It's like a dollar and four quarters. Are these the same? Well, no. I mean, in some ways, yes, right? Like, they're both the same category. They're currency. It's American currency. They're basically the same, but in form, one is paper, one isn't. So are these the same? Well, no, there is distinction there. Is one more valuable than the other? No. Here that is clear as day. Amidst the distinction and difference, it is not one of value. If you're too young to know what paper money is, it's like having $10 in Venmo or $10 in PayPal or something, you know. I'm relevant. It's what I do, you know. That's the key. That's the journey we're on. That we can still hold to this, and it doesn't mean a greater than, less than. And that's kind of where we're going. And why do I think we should still hold to this idea of there is distinction amongst the genders? Paul gives a couple reasons 
One, I'm not going to address. Did you hear in the middle of it, he gives his reason. Why should we do this? Because of the angels. What does that mean? Seriously, what do you know? I don't. He doesn't explain it. He just says it. None of the commentators can wrap their head around it. He's like, hey, make sure you do this because of the angels. What? I'm going to start using that now when I don't have, like, I don't know why. I'm going to tell that with my kids. Go to bed on time. Why? Because of the angels. <laughs> what? I, I literally don't understand. And, you know, feel free to use that. Why? Because of the angels. Get on. Gosh. So that part, I'm not going to lie to you, is confusing. And I don't fully understand. His other reasoning, I don't think is confusing. I think it's pretty clear and pretty compelling why I think we still hold on to this. So part of that difference of distinction, where does he take them to? For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. What is that? That's a creation account. Where does this idea of gender come from? See, culturally, society right now, it will be told, it's very common that that's a social construct, a messed up part of this fallen world that we push on people. That's not the biblical picture. It is key to understand where this is at in the story of things. This is Genesis 1 and 2. If you know, kind of familiar with the story, Genesis 3 is when sin corrupts this world. So we place this in Scripture as a part of God's creation, God's ordained creation unstained by sin. So I know this might not be common in our culture, but God created a distinction within gender, and there's that encouragement for men to be men and for women to be women. And that's not a part of the fall. That's a part of God's design. And even if that's hard to hear, right? Like part of, we got to understand, if you think of the creation account, what does God say about all his creation? It is good, right? And if this is something of God, which maybe it's hard for you to believe, but if we get to that place, we have to say it is good if it is created by God. I'm not going to lie. Like when I started, this is something I was kind of, ashamed to read or to hold to. Did I pray to get mildly ill this week so I didn't have to preach? I'm not going to say I did, but I'm not going to deny that either. Because, right, like part of this, I found myself a little bit embarrassed by it. But then God began to convict me as I began to get in his word. I don't want to be embarrassed by God's design. If it's his design, it's good. Remember in high school, Kind of like finally embracing God's view of sexuality, that sex should be within the confines of marriage. And I remember the second I realized, man, that's what I'm shooting for, I was like so embarrassed. Like, oh no. I mean, as a senior at Stowe Rocks High School, purity culture was not what they were pushing. And I remember being so embarrassed to admit that like, man, I'm going to try to wait till I was married. And you know how I got through it? No joke, I just blamed my girlfriend. I'm dead serious. I'm not proud of it. But I'm like, man, she waiting, so I guess I got to wait. You know, I'm not trying to. I'm not joking. But as I began to grow out of my cowardice and trust in our good God, wait, if this is God's design, it's good. And I want to lead into that, and I don't want to need to be ashamed of this. If this is God's design, and I think it is, I don't want to be ashamed of it. 
I think because of the difference, there is more beauty, not less. Part of how I got there is even thinking about race and thinking about one of the privileges I have is our home. We have diversity of gender. We also have some diversity of color. Think about how I would handle that. Would I ever encourage my daughter that she needs to be more brown, to reject how she was created? Would I dare encourage my son that he should be more white? How messed up would that be? What do I do in my home? I celebrate the diversity. I celebrate all the time, both my kids. I tell my son, God created you, and he doesn't make mistakes. And I love your beautiful brown skin. Our family is more beautiful because of it, not less. So why would I try to erase the distinction as opposed to celebrating it, which brings more beauty and more glory? So why would I do that in regards to diversity of gender in my home? I would never tell my daughter she's less than. I would say you're beautiful and created by God, that how God made you shows more of his glory because of this difference. We celebrate the difference because there's more glory and beauty because of it. So that's where I want to sit to that place of embracing God's design, that there is some difference in distinction. But the hard part, again, is we absolutely have to hold to, even in the midst of that, different than does not mean less than. And so as we get to this place, part of how I can feel so confident in the equality of both is that he takes us to creation why we should still hold on to this principle, but in describing this relationship, what else does he compare it to? Let's look at this verse. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What does he he parallel this dynamic with? The relationship in the Trinity of God, the Father, and Christ. What do we, we just studied the Trinity. What do we know about the distinction and difference within the Trinity? There is distinction, but they are both, all three members are equally God. Equal, but different. Philippians 2 brings this out so well. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is Christ. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Equality with God. God the Son and God the Father are equal. We must establish that in this dynamic and relationship. But here's a huge part. And here's the beauty of it. To say submission is less than is so wrong because then you have to say Christ is less than. To say that that is weakness, then you have to say Christ is weakness, which I hope none of us are willing to do. It was not the weakness of Jesus that had him take this role. It was the strength of Christ to willingly lay down his life for the sake of his Father, for the sake of us. Willingly is a huge word in this. Kevin DeYoung 
in this relationship talked about it, and I think in a helpful way. Submission is not something forcibly taken. It's something freely given. I hope you hear me loud and clear. As I think God's design does include male headship in the home, in the church. Don't you dare, I'm talking to you men, take this as a way where you can go home and tell your wife to submit. I joke around a lot. I'm not joking now. Don't do it. The beauty in it is the willingly laying your life down to taking that, demanding that. This is not about telling your wife to sit down. This is about you as a man standing up and taking your God-given role for the good of your family and for God's glory. So I hope you hear that loud and clear. If this is a Christ thing, then it's a glorious thing. It's a good thing that I don't think we need to reject. It's not that man has a greater... It talked about the glory of men and women. It's not that the man has great glory and the woman has lesser glory. It's different glories. The role and the distinction of woman brings the glory of Christ. It is not good for man to be alone. I can't believe not one woman amen there. Like, it is not good for man to be alone. Amen, right? Like, my level of patheticism would hit pathetic levels if done unto myself. It is not good. It is not good. (laughs) All right, we get the point. Dang, come on. (laughs) It is not good. It is not good for our church to be alone without the presence of our unbelievably worthy and gifted women in our midst. We must hold to that. So it is, there is distinction, but there is equality in that partnership. But part of it is understanding. When he describes the role of Ezer, that's the biblical word that we use the word helper, a suitable helper, if you remember from Genesis, if you're familiar, he uses this word, Ezer. And I like that I like that picture of ally in battle. That's the Hebrew word. And to understand this idea, I think you need to unpack this kind of word in what it all means. The problem is helper sounds so weak. See, when we think helper, I think of like when I'm cooking in the kitchen and I let my kids help. Like, oh, look at my little helper. You want sturdy eggs for dad? My little helper, my little buddy. You my little helper. That's not what's happening. Helper does not communicate weakness. Helper communicates a strength that I don't have. When I ask somebody, will you help me? It's because you possess something I lack. You have a strength. The word we talk about is complementarianism, that we complement each other. I'm not better than you. You are better than me in certain things, and I need you. So when I ask somebody for help, when my son says, can you help me reach that? He lacks my height. Not for much longer. I got like two more years probably. But right now, right, he's saying, you have something I don't. It's not the communication of weakness. That word helper communicates a complementary strength. We can't make that a weak word or we make Christ weak. And we can't make that a weak word because if you do a word study of this, of Ezer, yes, it describes women. Outside of this, what does that word describe? God Almighty. 
Men and women are the glory of God. It is a reflection of the glory and character of God. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my ezer come from? This is a word that describes God. So we cannot make this a weak word. As we think of this word, don't think of my little helper. I like this quote. And so God created woman to be an ezer to man. This word translated as helper is not about making brunch and darning a man's socks. This word means an ally, a rescuer, someone who comes running when the people cry out for help. And Ezra drops everything to save those in need. And Ezra is a hero. Being an Ezra had nothing to do with being subservient. And Ezra was not a docile assistant or a submissive sidekick. We would never describe God in these terms, nor should women be given these Labels. I don't know what darning socks means. (laughs) But you get the point. We can hold on to this. It doesn't just mean traditionalism. That's not what we're talking. We're talking about complementarianism and allies and warriors together in a battle that need each other. See, the strength of this role of the Ezer, and I think Paul even knows that, Right? How this can and has and could be abused. So if he, as he's laying out this design that I think is created by God, this good design, he kind of makes sure he backs it up at the end. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. He's saying, yes, I need you. And it's not just a nice little help from an assistant. It is a necessary help. He's like, look, in the end, keep in mind, you need each other. Both in the church, in the home, in this world, the fully glorified God who is bigger than just our gender applications. He needs men and women to both fully bring his glory to this earth. And so this role, they are interdependent, both absolutely necessary and valuable. And so as we lay out this passage, this principle, Nancy Guthrie, she is a great Bible teacher, kind of reminded me of the thing that we need to do, right? We need to stay on the line. The problem, particularly with this passage, is how many people have gone above the line and said more than it says, and how many people can go below the line and not fully say what God is laying out here. And so to try to stay on the line. So I want to be clear, because part of the rejection of this is we're rejecting a cultural application, not just what God is presenting here. So I want to go a little bit to make sure you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I am saying this principle is timeless. I'm not saying the practice doesn't change. Do you remember the core issue that he was dealing with? Is women wearing head coverings in church. Notice we haven't talked about that. Like, we pass things out at church. There's no, like, bonnets under your chairs. Like, we're not getting into head coverings. Why? Because that was a particular cultural expression. Now, the principle he lays out, rooted in creation, is headship. But how? Remember he said to have a symbol of authority. Cultural symbols change. So the symbol of head covering has changed. This was huge for me. See, part of 
understanding what that meant. In that culture, to put on a head covering in church was a symbol of marriage. So we don't get into that. Here's the right parallel. Would he be condemning them? Hey, every time you go to church, you take your wedding ring off. That ain't cool. So when we understand that application, that makes sense. It was a communication, a rejection of your marriage, and and communicating an availability that's dishonoring to your spouse. So when we say head coverings, I don't know about all that. Well, that was, for us, that's the same symbol as a wedding ring. And even got into hairstyles, right? And we go, well, if you do this, oh, gosh. Man, what hairstyles communicate has changed. If you're a dude with long hair, like, you're good. It's okay. I'm not, like, here condemning that because... That's a particular cultural application that has changed. Even the rough one, right? Like, women be silent. You're like, oh. Part of what was happening there, that was the jump to 14. It was the time in the service where it was for the pastors and the elders to come together and to discern the prophecy. Do you remember some of that language? This isn't an absolute prohibition from women being a part of the service. And I can guarantee you that because what was the original problem? How for women to pray in church? The assumption is that women are a part of the service, are a valuable part of the service, so you can't take that to mean absolute silence. It is a particular kind of, hey, in this situation, that is reserved for the pastors and the elders as you're discerning prophecy. That's what's happening there to the best of my understanding. So we can reject a lot of the other things that feel like, gosh, what does that mean? But still hold on to the principle. Another thing, difference in roles. I'm not saying difference in gifting. See, part of this, I want you to understand, right? So we're saying, yes, there is this difference. By and large, the same. In the creation account, it highlights the similarities. But there is distinction there. But don't hear me incorrectly. I'm not saying that women aren't gifted leaders. I'm not saying that women aren't gifted teachers. My wife is a wonderfully gifted Bible teacher. We have an entire team of women that are gifted teachers, gifted leaders. We're not saying that. And you don't have to take it to that level. So we can embrace... And understand that difference doesn't mean a less than in gifting. That there are gifting. And I love, right now, our church, we just switched Redemption Academy. It's one of the programs where we study theology. And it is our kind of highest level of theological training here at the church. We just change it to make sure women can be a part of that. Women were disciples of Christ. They sat at his feet. Theology isn't a male thing. That is saying way more than this passage means to say We want our gifted women to study in theology, to grow, to use all of your gifting, or else we will suffer as a church. A couple more. So I am saying it's a responsibility to lovingly lead. I'm not saying it's a privilege to get what you want. That's how the culture reads it, like, oh, authority, now you have the privilege. Now finally I can get a boat because I'm the man. I'm going to, this is where this house, we're moving in. This is where we're going. We're going to vacation. It has nothing to do with getting what you want. If you use this or abuse this to just get what you want, you will be judged by God and have to answer to him. The authority given to you 
is a responsibility, not a privilege. You will be held responsible where you led your family, and is it to Christ, and how. We didn't get into Ephesians, but the picture of this is not a dictator. It's not a doormat. It's lovingly leading and serving. It is a call to love as Christ loved the church. It is a call to cherish, to nurture. Those are the words that Paul uses to describe. It has nothing to do with getting your way and everything to do with you embracing that responsibility and in a loving, nurturing way to lead your family towards Christ. It's a responsibility, not a privilege. And I want to end with one last point, and I think this is a huge part of the problem as we dive into this issue. I am saying God's design is good. I'm not saying your experience is good with this. You know, as we reject this, so often we're rejecting this because we've seen it so deeply abused. This has, does, and will continue to be abused in this fallen world. Listen to me. If this God-ordained role that has been given, if you in your life, whether it be by your father, your husband, your pastor, abuse that to harm you, I'm deeply sorry. You can reject that because that is not God's design that I am presenting here. God's design is of a cherishing, loving, nurturing leadership. And so make sure when you hear this, you don't hear the abuse of that. I'm sorry for how that has been abused in your life. And that's not what God has for you. And let me say this. If you're in that position, it can be scary and fearful, but ultimately your submission is to Christ. You are never... Asked by God, if you feel like you're being led into sin, you can reject that all day guilt-free. Because ultimately, the reason you do it, you don't submit because your husband deserves it. I promise you he doesn't. You do it because Jesus asked you to. You do it in devotion to him. And ultimately, if you're led into sin, you can reject that. If you're in a position where you are under abuse, I am not using this to get you to stay in that abuse. You get help, you get safe, you get security. If you can't find that, reach out to the church. We will help you. Reach out. Don't just sit in that. Find the safety and security you need. That is not what's being presented. But because of the abuse, we know from Genesis 2, this is God's good design. We know from Genesis 3, this will be messy and difficult. And so in that, how do we surrender to God and celebrate him? Because it isn't about who gets to do that. It's about magnifying him. And I think we best do that by surrendering to his design. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, will you forgive the church? I mean that in the big C way. Forgive me, forgive us for ways that we have rejected or abused your design. God, help us to know that you are good, that every gift from you is good. Help us to experience that. Help us to lean into that. Forgive us for when we step outside of that.
But God, we proclaim right now that you are the glorious one. And help us to reflect that glory in Jesus' name. Amen.